0: emotions and bodily sensations are signals. They're like street signs, and they point us in the direction of our needs.
1: Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think ring true, how they feed their good wolf.
2: Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce ON, perhaps the best-kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest-growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, On shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And On is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment free. Head to on-running.com feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code tryonfeed at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them? Keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com feed and the promo code
1: is tryonfeed. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Julie Simon, a licensed psychotherapist and life coach with over 30 years of experience in helping overeaters and imbalanced eaters stop dieting, heal their relationships with themselves and their bodies, lose excess weight, and keep it off. A lifelong fitness enthusiast, Julie is also a certified personal trainer with over 25 years of experience designing exercise and nutrition programs for various populations. She is also the founder and director of the popular Los Angeles-based 12-week emotional eating recovery program. Her new book is When Food is Comfort, Nurture Yourself Mindfully, Rewire Your Brain, and End Emotional Eating. Hi, Julie. Welcome
2: to the show.
0: Hi there. Thank you for having me.
2: I'm really excited to have you on. Your book is called When Food is Comfort. Nurture yourself mindfully, rewire your brain, and end emotional eating. And I know this is a topic that a lot of listeners will be interested in, so I'm looking forward to jumping into it. But let's start like we always do with the parable. There's a grandmother who's talking with her granddaughter, and she says, In life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the granddaughter stops and she thinks about it for a second and looks up at her grandmother. And She says, well, grandmother, which one wins? And the grandmother says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do.
0: That parable actually is so important to the work I do because, as you know, or you may not know, for nearly 30 years I've been working with overeaters who are primarily emotional eaters. And really the work I do is truly all about what we feed ourselves, both literally and figuratively. And pretty much every day of our lives, I think we have experiences, both pleasant and unpleasant, uh, and we have reactions to our experiences. And I think these reactions include emotions and bodily sensations like muscle tension or butterflies and our thoughts and the things we say to ourselves. And our emotional reactions can lead to self-defeating thoughts uh, and vice versa. Our thoughts can lead to you know, pleasant or unpleasant emotions. They can lead to moods like anxiety or excessive sadness, hopelessness or despair, self-rejection or low self-esteem. So basically our reactions to our experiences can either feed a bad wolf And, you know, that would be the unpleasant emotions, the self-defeating thoughts, uh, the low self-esteem. Or we can develop habits, even uh, in reaction to our experiences, we can develop skills that would feed the good wolf, which would mean things like uh, self-compassion, self-acceptance, self-love. And so really, the work I do is all about teaching people the skills that will help them feed the good wolf.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. And the book really does have a lot of focus on skills. So let's go ahead and, and jump into a little bit more detail here. You say that the primary cause of our emotional eating is disconnection from ourselves. Can you mm-hmm. explain that a little bit more?
0: Well, you know, one of the most common causes of overeating and weight gain is difficulty regulating Our emotions, our moods, our thoughts, and even disruptive impulses and behaviors. So when we are experiencing unpleasant emotions, uh, when we're experiencing self-defeating thoughts, many of us, if we haven't learned particular skills when we were young for regulating and processing through those emotions and regulating our nervous system and reframing those self-defeating thoughts, many of us just disconnect from ourselves because we don't know We just don't know how to handle kind of the storm that's going on inside of us. And we disconnect in many ways. So some people turn to food to disconnect. Some people turn to drugs and alcohol. uh, Some people turn to behaviors like gambling or sex addiction, drama. So we're basically trying to do something to regulate the pain that we're experiencing and those examples that I gave are a form of disconnection. And so the problem with disconnection is that we never build any skill. We never build any skill for handling what life throws us, right?
2: Yeah. And you talk about how, to a large extent, this starts with early interactions with our caregivers, that this skill of self-regulation that is not working real well if we are eating emotionally or have other addiction issues, that, that self-regulation skill doesn't get developed due to early interactions with our caregivers.
0: If we back up for a second and we talk about, really kind of define what self-regulation means, we're really referring to our ability to manage our emotions and moods and regulate our nervous system so that we can control or redirect uh, our impulses and our behaviors and we can think before we act. And basically, in order for us to master a skill of self-regulation, we need to have parts of our brain, the upstairs part of our brain, the logical, soothing, comforting part of our brain, well-connected or properly wired to the downstairs part of our brain, which we call the emotional brain. And recent advances in brain science have uncovered the crucial role that our early social and emotional environment plays in the development of um, imbalanced eating patterns, So what we found is that when we don't receive consistent and sufficient emotional nurturance during our early years, then our brains and nervous system become wired kind of for high reactivity. That lower brain is uh, triggered more often, and it makes it difficult for us to soothe ourselves, and it certainly leaves us at greater risk for seeking comfort from external sources like food.
2: Right, and you say the book is not about blaming parents and caregivers. It's really about understanding what we may have missed out on when we were younger and the effects that that has had on us today. And so you talk about two sort of key things in early childhood development, um, attunement and attachment. Can you talk briefly about those two areas?
0: Yes, and those two things that we're talking about are really crucial in terms of brain development as well so basically when we're an infant uh, and we're experiencing emotion we don't have any labels for that emotion and we certainly don't know how to regulate what's happening to us and so an infant just starts crying has tension in his or her body and just starts crying and mommy kind of swoops in mommy or daddy or whoever the caregiver is kind of swoops in And calms and soothes, she uses her voice and her tone and her eye contact and her behavior, her touch, to soothe and comfort, kind of tune in. We call that attunement, tune in to what's happening with the baby so she can kind of figure out what's that cry about. Is that cry, uh, I'm hungry cry? Is that my diaper is dirty cry? You know, is that I'm sick cry? I don't feel well cry? What kind of cry is that? So mommy swoops in, she, she tunes in, she's well attuned to her baby's different cries, and she regulates the baby and calms the baby down and sues the baby. And this will happen, you know, thousands of times in the the baby's uh, infancy. And as the baby becomes a toddler and mommy will kind of swoop in, she'll use again her words and her her tone and everything to comfort and soothe the baby. And now she's going to start to teach the toddler words. Like when the toddler, you know, is upset, she might say, I see you're feeling sad. That's sadness. Oh, you're mad right now. She'll also use her words to help the baby learn things like corners of tables are sharp. So it's best not to crawl near them. Putting your hand on that hot surface doesn't feel good. So she's going to tune in to what the baby's doing. She's going to regulate the baby's emotional system. And as the child develops, the child's going to begin to co-regulate. So the child will begin to say, you know, I'm sad. I could use a hug. Or, you know, the child will co-regulate with mommy. And this attunement is is wiring the brain in a particular way. It's wiring those parts of the brain, the, the self-soothing, regulating logical function with the emotional brain. It's creating neuronal pathways among those and between those different parts. And while the caregiver is offering the child good attunement, she's creating what's called a secure attachment with the child. So the child is developing trust that the world is safe and that if anything happens, there's someone there to help. And that attachment is also very important in terms of the brain getting wired and and not only just the brain connections getting wired but also the chemistry of the brain the structures that create all those good chemicals like dopamine and serotonin all those structures are being created uh in the presence of good attunement secure attachment and a sufficient consistent emotional nurturance so it's really critical that's why I always say I'm not blaming caregivers because, you know, parenting is one of the hardest jobs in the world, but it's also a, t- a very critical time in terms of brain development. And so caregivers didn't get their needs when they were young, so perhaps they're missing some skills. Um, maybe that's like a caregiver who, you know, when you come home from school and you're very upset and your, your caregiver says, well, let's go have ice cream. I know you had a rough day let's go have ice cream but not really tuning in to your emotions and not really helping you understand how to process through them so that's that can be a very well-intentioned caregiver who's missing some skills you could also have a caregiver who's depressed or a caregiver who's having to work long hours you know in today's modern world kids don't have the kind of village that children once had uh, in terms of exposure to other elders So, you know, we're seeing a lot more brain imbalance.
2: Right. And you talk about it's not the result always. It can be, but it's not always the result of um, something horrific or terrible or traumatic, although those things have severe impacts and you know we've we've talked about that on this show before but you quote the british psychoanalyst winnicott i think that's the way to say it who says you know it could be caused by nothing happening when something might profitably have happened and this makes me think of an earlier episode when we were talking with somebody who's done a lot of study about our inner voice what is the inner voice where does it come from a lot of people believe that the inner voice is simply we hear outer voices and then eventually that's how we learn to communicate with ourselves and we bring those outer voices internal and if those outer voices are not ones that teach us how to regulate, then we bring those voices in and that's kind of what we end up with. And we don't have the skills to regulate our emotions. And you say that disordered eating patterns represent resourceful survival strategies for regulating emotional or physical arousal. And I think that's so important to think about with addiction, with, um, eating emotionally, is that this stuff works in some way. It's a coping strategy that has worked for us in some way, shape, or form. It's just become maladaptive. And you say that understanding this takes the shame out of the emotional eating, the recovery, and shows us a way forward.
0: Yes, I think that's so critical because I think all people who are struggling with uh, any kind of addictive behavior feel a level of shame about it because they feel out of control. And I like to help them understand that, A, it's not their fault, you know, often there were early childhood experiences that are at play here, as well as genetic, uh, you know, biological, neurological, and there are also genetic factors at play, so it's not your fault, um, and also, you know, these are very resourceful coping strategies, so not only is it not your fault, but you're also really creative in terms of finding a way to comfort and soothe and pleasure yourself. You know, either you found that food does it or maybe you found that uh, gambling does it or drinking does it. And clearly people come to see me and, um, you know, seek out help because ultimately it's not working. Um, But when we start turning to these substances and, you know, process addictions, it's because we're resourceful. We've hit on something I know in my teens, for example, I smoked cigarettes and I didn't really understand it then. I only understood years later that I had low dopamine levels and nicotine increases the release of norepinephrine and ultimately dopamine. And so I was self-medicating. I was self-medicating a a low level depression that I had. But I didn't know that. I mean, I just kind of gravitated towards the cigarettes like other teens did. And for some reason, I gravitated and became addicted, and others didn't. And I didn't know anything about why until years later when I began to understand that, ah, so that for me was like taking an antidepressant. You know, it was adjusting my brain chemistry. And that's a pretty resourceful uh, way to. Adjust your brain chemistry. It's ultimately damaging and has health consequences, but it was resourceful.
2: Right. Yeah. I often think about addiction or the things that we do that are addictive get us to a point, help us to survive, whatever it is that's happening that gets us to a point when we are then able. If we're lucky, to develop coping mechanisms that that are useful. They're a tool that gets us to a point and they need to be discarded, but they are very useful for a period of time. And I think that's a that's an important understanding in why we do the things we do. There's one last piece of understanding about this that I want to talk about, and then I want to go into your sort of your skills that you teach for how to do the regulation. But I think this is another important piece. And you say that when we are eating emotionally, or any of these other things we're doing numbing out or distracting ourselves, that that part of us in that moment is a very, very young part of us. So we are not in those moments when we're trying to disengage, we're dealing with a very young, fragile part of ourselves in those moments. And that part of the reason it can be so challenging is that that young part of us doesn't respond to reason. So we're trying to reason with ourselves with like, well, I shouldn't do this because of blah, 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 and laying out these logical arguments. But the part of us that's kind of in charge at that point is this very young part of ourselves that does not respond to reason and logic.
0: Yeah. And I think that that's an important concept for people to understand that when there's a situation that's triggering distress and you're a person who didn't have sufficient and consistent emotional nurturance in your early years and so your brain got wired a little bit more for high reactivity you have a situation that's causing distress you just had an argument with a coworker you had an argument with your spouse something went wrong you know during your day somehow you're very very upset you're emotionally dysregulated because you're missing skills, because you're missing those self-care skills that we're going to talk about, you are stuck in, the best way to think about it is you're developmentally derailed. You're stuck in an earlier phase of development and you feel very young at those times. You know, you want to scream, you're frustrated, you know, you're overwhelmed, you're mad, you know, and most people know this state that I'm talking about when you're just in a bad place and maybe you're um, hurt, you're angry, you're lonely, you're frustrated, and you're experiencing a lot of emotion. Maybe you're even aware that your body is feeling very dysregulated. It's very hard to try and reason with yourself at times like this. So let's say you're feeling like that and you're just ready to drive through jack-in-the-box or mcdonald's you know you're ready to go through a, to a burger joint you're going to get a cheesy burger and fries and a shake and like because as we said before you know intuitively that that will quiet the storm if you eat all of that it's going to quiet the storm and you also know that no matter what you say to yourself because you've tried i mean most people who have, are working on these things have tried to uh resolve these issues so you, you try to talk to yourself about what the boss said or what someone else said. But the urge to disconnect and numb yourself out is so strong because that part of you is very, very young. And what hasn't developed is a very mature, wise, kind, loving, nurturing part. It's the part I call the inner nurture. That part is usually very undeveloped. What you have generally very strongly developed is an inner critic voice, maybe beating you up for what the boss said, and an inner indulging voice. That's a voice that said, yeah, let's just go to the drive-thru, let's just get that burger, and you know, we'll deal with dieting later or eating healthier later. So you're under the influence of an emotionally dominant part of the brain. It's called the amygdala. It's like the size and shape of an almond, and you can't reason with that part of the brain. That part of the brain doesn't respond to reason. So that's when you're going to get yourself in trouble. And that's where the skills come in, in terms of learning how to build that voice that can help regulate you, uh, help calm you down, soothe you, help you look at what's going on, help you address any self-defeating thoughts you're having, and perhaps even reassure you, comfort you, and give you hope. So we've got some skill building there that has to happen.
2: The world is changing faster and faster today and there's so much uncertainty and one of the skills that we need to deal with it is to be able to learn things quickly and the best way I found to do that is Blinkist. Blinkist is a unique and powerful app that works on your phone, your tablet or your web browser and basically what they do is give you the best key takeaways, the need to know information from over 3,000 nonfiction bestsellers. They condense them down into Links which you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. I've found it really helpful for me over the last few weeks to really get up to speed a lot more on racial issues in this country. They've got a ton of great books out there that you can look at, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, and so many more. And now they've got a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash wolf to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership and up to 65% off audiobooks that are yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash wolf to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash wolf.
3: The people who drive industries, entertainment, and culture shape our world every day in bold and dramatic ways. But did you ever wonder how they got there? Behind the Talent features in-depth conversations with people who identify and develop talent, the people who find the people that shape our world. Guests include big league sports scouts, rock star talent agents, and CIA officers. Uncovering the skills and challenges that unite them all is the job of host David Mead, He's an expert speaker and educator, and he brings his own curiosity and insights to each interview to expand our understanding of what it means to be a recruiter in today's world of work. Brought to you by Indeed.com, Behind the Talent is a must-listen for anyone interested in the secrets behind identifying talent and unlocking potential in individuals and organizations. Subscribe to Behind the Talent now,
1: wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, it's Chris. Just a reminder, if you'd like these episodes ad-free, you can listen to them right in your podcast app if you go to oneufeed.net slash support. And now, back to the interview with Julie Simon. You've got
2: seven skills. You say to develop this inner nurture or to nurture ourselves. Inner nurturing consists of the following seven skills, and I'll just read them real quick. There's no way we're going to get through all of them in this interview. That's why I just want to kind of get all seven of them out there now, and we'll talk uh, about a couple of them in a little bit more detail. But the seven skills are, number one, you call pop the hood, so name and track the emotions and bodily sensations that are occurring. Uh, Step two, or skill two, is to practice self-validation. Skill three is to reinforce the alliance and offer love, support, and comfort to ourselves. Skill four is to get clear on needs. Skill five is to catch and reframe self-defeating thoughts. Skill six is to highlight the resources that we have and provide hope to ourselves. And skill seven is to address the needs and set nurturing limits. So let's start with skill one, which is really the fundamental skill we have to start with. You call it pop the hood. Give us a little more detail on what we're doing here.
0: That's a really, basically, a really simple skill, but um, one that I would say many, many, many people, not just emotional eaters, are missing or have poorly developed. Really, it's all about what I call self connection. It's going inside into your internal world and just like a master mechanic, listening for distress. And we're basically going to be looking, uh, we're going to be exploring our emotions and our bodily sensations. And I find People can come at this in one of two ways. Some people are not very clear on what they're feeling, what their emotions are, not so great at labeling. So, with those people, I like to start with the body. You know, what are you noticing in your body? So, you you just had that argument, you know, with your coworker. What are you noticing? Shoulders are tight. Uh, fists are clenched, jaw is tight, stomach is kind of gurgly and tight, or other people are very good at identifying emotions. I'm really angry. I'm really hurt. I feel betrayed. I feel sad. I feel lonely. I feel frustrated. I feel overwhelmed. So the very first step is to become aware of some of your most signals, your emotions and your bodily sensations. And I teach people that It's important to become aware of these. So some people say, why should I feel all that stuff? A lot of it's unpleasant. Who cares? Well, emotions and bodily sensations are signals. They're like street signs and they point us in the direction of our needs. So if you really want to solve issues and, of course, you need to figure out what you need, the best way to figure out what you need is to begin with what you feel and let that take you to what you need. So we pop the hood we we pull away from the situation that's causing distress. Maybe we're at that drive-in, ready to get some food. So we pull in the parking lot, just grab a piece of paper and start by popping the hood, writing down, what am I feeling? Now that I just had that argument with the coworker, what are the feelings I'm having and what are the bodily sensations I'm having? Okay? Yep. And it's a very basic step and it's a critical step is that you begin to understand what's going on inside of yourself, what's underneath the hood.
2: Yeah, and there's a couple of nuances here that you talk about. One is that a lot of us have a tendency to move away from unpleasant emotions by focusing on our thoughts. So we think we are identifying the emotions and sensations, but what we're really doing is we're touching them for a second and then we're immediately back into our thought process. Can you describe kind of what that looks like and 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 what to watch out for and how to handle that?
0: Yes, I mean, I'll often have people say... I'll say, okay, so you had that interaction with your husband and, you know, didn't go very well. What were you feeling? And so they might say, well, I'm feeling that he's a jerk and things will never get better. And I'll say, okay, so that's a thought. He's a jerk. That's not a feeling. So when you had the argument with him, do you recall what you were feeling or what you're feeling in the moment now that we're talking about it? Well, I guess I'm feeling angry. I guess I'm feeling sad. I guess I'm feeling like our marriage will never get any better because he's not going to change. So, okay. So we're, we're back into the thoughts a little bit. <laughs> so let's come back just to the feelings. So I'll say, you know, feelings are just one word, sad, mad, glad let's, let's just stay with the feelings. And then I'll, especially for someone who jumps away to their thoughts so quickly, I'll say, when you're telling me that you feel sad, I'm wondering if you're feeling that in your body or that's just kind of up in your head as a concept. And often people will say, well, I'm not really feeling it. Okay, so so let's go back. So sad, where do you think you might feel sad in your body? And often if we slow down, we will feel it. So the person might say, oh, now that you're asking me, I kind of feel like a heaviness in my chest. Okay. So emotion basically presents in the body first before we have labels for it. And it's great to notice the sensations even more than to find the labels because actually labeling our emotions is even is a cognitive act. So even labeling them kind of takes us a little bit away from them. So we go back. Our Our goal is to stay present to what's happening in the body and notice how we're experiencing our emotions. And if we tend to jump away to our thoughts... Say to yourself, I'm going to write down those thoughts later. I'll address those thoughts later. Right now, I want to go back to what am I feeling after I just had that discussion with my mother? Okay? So we just stay present. We're working on building the skill of not only identifying emotions and sensations, but tolerating them. Being able to sit with emotions and sensations. Even the big ones like shame or guilt, you know, or serious grief, right? Being able to tolerate emotions, noticing they're not going to kill us, right? We can actually experience them and move through them. And that's where real recovery is.
2: Right. And you mentioned also that there are some times that we are too emotionally overwrought to really do this process very well. And you recommend in, in times like that that we use what you call soothing behaviors to restore ourselves to calm, not to distract us from our feelings, but to get us back to a place that's a little bit more calm, so that we are able to pop the hood, as you say. What are some examples of soothing behaviors or explain, you know, how someone might know, okay, you know what, I can't pop the hood just yet because, you know, there's a ton of smoke still rolling out from underneath the hood. I better soothe this a little bit first. When when do you know when that's a good idea? And what are a couple of the things that, that we might do that are soothing but not distracting?
0: Well, I think you would know basically if you're having really big feelings, right? And you feel kind of like, you know, even just labeling them, you're, you're so dysregulated. So let's say I, I'm thinking of an example of a client who, came back from a work situation where she felt like someone kind of uh, attacked her and shamed her in a meeting and so she was feeling very anxious and kind of chaotic inside and so just sitting down to identify her feelings her body is feeling so dysregulated so anxious agitated that it's she can't clear her head to do any of this kind of work in the way we're talking so with someone like that I would want her to Perhaps uh, do a little grounding work, sit in a chair with her feet flat on the floor, maybe her hands on her lap, and just begin to take some deep breaths, you know, really noticing the breath going in and the breath going out. And she can stick with that, or she can even start a little bit of relaxation, like noticing what's happening in her feet, kind of tense and relax the feet, tense and relax the calves, and just doing a little guided. Relaxation in the body. Even things like getting into some comfortable clothes, um, making a cup of tea, sitting in a comfortable chair. For some people, just listening to a little bit of soothing music is a good way to start. We can even use what I call soothing gestures. You can touch your face, you can stroke from your shoulders to your elbows, you know, just kind of gently giving yourself like a hug. Anything that begins to calm you. Uh, you might lay down in a fetal position and just kind of hold yourself. For some people, that's just getting still. Anything that's going to calm the storm a little bit. The idea here is not to do something that's distracting. So we don't want to just go read a book. Uh, although if a little reading calms you down, that's fine. But our goal isn't to just go do another activity. Our goal is to calm down enough to begin our skill uh, to begin working our skills. So to begin popping the hood.
2: Great. Let's talk about skill number two, to practice self-validation.
0: Well, you know, all of these skills are strategically developed and they go in a particular order because what I want my reader to do is to begin connecting to herself, okay? And at the same time, Begin to develop that inner nurturing voice. So, as I said before, the majority of emotional eaters, and I would say the majority of people who use any kind of an addiction, typically uh, do not have a very well developed inner nurturing voice. And so, how are we going to develop a voice like that? If we didn't hear enough of it when we were younger, we didn't have enough exposure to it, how are we going to develop it? We're going to have to kind of fake it till we make it. So, we're going to have to practice. A voice. So all the skills that I teach are designed to help you slowly build that voice. So after we pop the hood, we're going to practice skill number two called self-validation, because that's going to get you talking to yourself from breaking yourself apart into two parts, if you will. So there's that young part that says, you know, I feel really sad and I feel really lonely. And then there's that nurturing part that's going to say, it makes sense to feel sad and lonely In this situation, and it's okay to have those feelings. So, we're going to accomplish a lot of things with that self validation. A, we're going to be building that voice that's critical. We need to build that inner nurturing voice, but we're also going to be soothing ourselves. Uh, Self validation is soothing and comforting. So, we're comforting ourselves, we're soothing ourselves at the same time, we're building the voice we need to build.
2: Right. And this is such a useful step to be able to develop that internal voice that that speaks to ourselves more kindly that as you say offers understanding and also says, you know, it's okay for what's happening to be to be happening.
0: Yes, and I, you know, I call validation. I say validation is de- a development significant, meaning most of us didn't get enough validation. We didn't get enough of someone saying, it's okay to feel that way. And it makes sense. Understanding and acceptance is what validation is all about. So we're going to learn how to validate what we feel and what we think. And we're going to learn to say that every emotion is valid. Every thought is valid. Every sensation is valid. They're all understandable in a context. They're all acceptable to have.
2: I get excited about learning, exploring new interests. I love history, and that's why I've been a fan of the Great Courses Plus for years. And I know you'll love this tool. You get unlimited access to watch and listen to leading experts explore fascinating topics. There's thousands of lectures in virtually every category: history, science, psychology, philosophy, learn how to cook, take photos, learn a new language, and you can watch or listen at any time. Anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app. I just got done teaching a course on stress, and it's pretty darn good. But you can get their course, Stress in Your Body, taught by world-renowned Robert Sapolsky. And he is a great teacher and a great lecturer. And this course is really fascinating. And I'll tell you, stress matters. This course talks about all the ways that stress can affect us both positively and negatively, and great ways to cope with it. This is a great course to get you started with The Great Courses Plus or enjoy any of their fascinating lectures. So I've got a special limited time offer for our listeners. You get a full month of The Great Courses Plus for free. That's 30 days for free of watching as many lectures as you want on so many great topics. So feed your good wolf today by going to the Great slash wolf That's all run together. The Great Courses Plus, as in slash wolf So get your free 30 days at TheGreatCoursesPlus.com/Wolf. One of the things I like about the book is it has a lot of useful phrases in there for those who don't know how to do this? You know, what what sort of things should I say to myself? Like like you said, if we haven't really got a lot of experience in in either doing it for ourselves or having somebody do it for us or seeing it modeled, you've got a lot of phrases in there that we can use and, and try on for size. I want to talk about another piece of this that you bring up that I think is really, really useful. You say, how can I practice self-validation when I'm disappointed in myself? So, for example, I've just eaten an entire carton of ice cream or polished off a tray of brownies. In those moments, it feels difficult to do self-validation because we really feel bad about what just happened. And you talk about how it's important that we've, we're validating the feelings behind the behavior, not the behavior itself
0: right so we're not saying you go girl you rock eat brownies every night that's the thing to do you know we're not <laughs> we're not validating the behavior we're validating that you know the reason you baked the tray of brownies and ate the whole thing is because you were feeling so lonely on friday night and you were feeling so upset with that conversation with your father and that's why you know, you didn't feel like there was any other way that you could comfort yourself, and that's okay. That's okay. You know, we're learning skills, and it's okay that that's what you were feeling, right? So we're not so much validating the behavior. We're not, we're not making it terrible and wrong, you know, to have slip-ups either, um, but basically, we're validating what we're feeling and that we were going through a pretty rough time. And that's why we turn to our favorite source of comfort.
2: Right. And I think this is such a key point, though, because when we disappoint ourselves with by by acting out in whatever our addiction or, or, or bad behavior is, it's it's such a fine line to find that middle ground where we're not you know berating ourselves endlessly over the behavior and yet it doesn't feel okay at the same way to be like oh it's fine no big deal right and and i like this cuz it threads the the needle right through the middle way of that which is all right i'm acknowledging that there's something going on emotionally that is causing me to act that way and i'm validating that that it was okay to feel that way that it's normal to feel that way but not the behavior itself and i just think that's such a useful point
0: right and even being able to say as we did earlier the behavior even itself was resourceful you know it's not what i want to be doing it's not what i want to continue to be doing but it's still an old resourceful way thing that i turn to until i've got these skills built It's how I've been learning to take care of myself. And I think what I want to highlight here, what self-validation is all about, and the reason it's not so much about condoning the behavior, but what it's really all about is self-compassion, and it's about self-acceptance. Like I accept me right where I am today, and today I'm still using food. And so I accept that that's where I am now, and I have compassion for myself with where I'm at. And that doesn't mean I'm not moving forward or I can't move forward, but I accept right where I'm at right now.
2: And this all points to this sort of idea that you're you're pointing out here around, we are doing these things because of our lack of ability to regulate emotion. We can't handle the way we feel. And so we act out in one way or other in, in a way that has in the past worked for us. And this points to why most of the approaches to getting better from these things don't work because it's that it's that classic I just did something that I feel bad about so I just berate myself more and more so now I feel worse about myself and the way that I deal with feeling worse about myself is to eat or do drugs and then I do that and then I feel worse about myself and now I make that worse by you know, you know, attacking myself again, and on and on and on. And this is a way to sort of break part of that cycle. We may not be at the point where we can fully break the behavioral part of the cycle, but we start to break the emotional part of the cycle. And we start to try and process emotions in a different way.
0: Right. And that's why, you know, the skill number three that's coming up is so critical, which is where you're going to reinforce the alliance between a loving kind nurturing wise part of yourself even if you don't even feel like there's anything like that inside of you you're going to begin to develop that and you're going to form an alliance between that part of you and the part of you that says you know I'm stuck in this vicious cycle I can't I can't stand the way I feel and I turn to food or alcohol or drugs to numb it out and then I feel so terrible about myself And then I'm going to do it again because I feel so terrible about myself. And then there's this part of you. And over time, this part of you may even morph into a spiritual part of you, maybe a higher self or maybe even your angels or God or whatever you would call it. Part of you that's there with you down in the bottom pit, right? Sitting down in the pit with you saying, I'm right here with you, babe. I know how terrible it feels. You're not alone. I love you. I care about you. I'm with you. We're going to get through this together. You know, and I think that is so critical to develop that part of yourself, a higher part of yourself, whatever that looks like to each person, but a part of you that when you're in the darkest nights of your soul, that you don't feel alone.
2: I agree that is such a critical thing to be able to do is to offer love, support, comfort, to ourselves. When we're in the midst of difficult situations, it's great when we can get it from others. And, and later in the book, you talk about that. And so this isn't like a, oh, I have to do all of this myself all of the time. But an essential skill is to be able to deliver it to ourselves in moments of crisis, when maybe there aren't other people available, or we don't have those, those sorts of resources in our lives.
0: Or even if we do, we risk draining people if we're coming to them all the time, you know, to do the comforting and soothing work that we need. You know, I found in my own journey, um, I I certainly didn't have a lot of people that I could turn to for that. And I tried. I tried to pull it off of people, you know, at different points in my life, tried to get it from other people. And when I was really beginning to turn within and building that inner supportive voice, what what I started to feel was that I, and it ha, and it became kind of consistent that I always kind of wanted to go home first and take care of my own needs. I processed through what I was feeling and kind of get clear on everything, even before I shared it with anyone else. And to this day, when something's bothering me, I typically don't want to talk to anyone until I've kind of sat with it and really kind of figured out all that I'm feeling and brought my inner nurture in and soothed and comforted myself because. And I talk about this in the book. You know, typically when we go to other people, they often offer a lot of advice and um, problem solving. And many people are not that great at helping you process through your emotions. So uh, you turn to other people and sometimes you don't really learn the skills you need to learn.
2: Well, we are at the end of our time here, Julie. I will have links in the show notes to where people can find your book, where they can learn the rest of the skills. You and I are going to continue the conversation in some of the post-show conversation. I specifically want to talk about catching and reframing self-defeating thoughts. You know, How do we work with uh, the self-defeating thoughts that come up? You and I will um, continue. Uh, listeners, if you're interested in that, Um, supporters of the show get access to the post-show conversation, you can go to oneyoufeed.net slash support and get access to that. And you can listen to it in your podcast player. But Julie, thank you so much. The book was really, really helpful. And as I said, there will be links in the show notes to where listeners can get a copy of it.
0: It's been my pleasure. I'm uh, glad that I could join you today.
2: Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Bye.
1: If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneyoufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.